Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, the recorded few in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 5th, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. In today's text, St. Paul tells the Corinthians that because they are partakers at the Lord's table, they must flee from idolatry and from the table of demons. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. So we get started today, Pastor Preuss, give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul has been saying leading up to this section in chapter 10? Well, for those who've been uh, following along, uh, St. Paul just finished, or has finished, he's continuing, uh, he's warning his uh, the, the Christians of Corinth against apostasy, pretty much. So apostasy would be falling away, and there are ways that, that people fall away. So he uses the example of the people of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus. Uh, they followed Moses. They were baptized into uh, with Moses in the Red Sea. They ate same spiritual food. They ate same spiritual drink, same spiritual drink. Uh, and yet, with most of them, he was displeased when they were overthrown in the wilderness. Well, why was he displeased? Well, it was because they were disobedient, uh, and they, they fell away. They did not have true faith. Um, so it, uh, it, he gives the examples, the example at the beginning of this chapter, where he talks about how some of, he said we should not be idolatrous, and some of them were, uh, and uh, who sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the, the golden calf. He says, do not indulge, you must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did. Uh, and uh, 23,000 dollars for the same. They're talking about, uh, that's what the, uh, the uh, pulp prostitutes from Midian. And then the, uh, or no, grumble, some of them did, or the Trevor Destroyer. So he, he gives these examples that you should be well, should be uh, familiar with from the books of Moses. And then here in chapter in verse fourteen, he goes back to idolatry. So he's going uh, after he's introduced. You know, uh, I suppose it would be idolatry, sexual morality, covetousness, but for of course uh, discontent. Uh, and now he's going back to idolatry. So he isn't just going on a tangent, as some people will accuse Paul of doing, which I don't know if that's ever actually fair. I mean, I don't even know if you could call it digression. He will. He will go on side um, lectures, you could say. But I think he's always doing it intentionally. But this is very much right on page. Uh, and uh, he's revisiting a topic he was talking about in First Corinthians 8 when it comes to food sacrifice to idols. And I think he's actually uh, completing his thought there by going uh, talking about really what's at stake, which is, uh, which is faithfulness to Christ. Yeah, and how we worship, right? And uh, yeah, if, if if there was a 
a tangent of sorts. Chapter 9 was a little bit more of a tangent, although it wasn't a tangent. It was an example of the way that Christian freedom is used in service to the neighbor. At the same time, Paul gives that that note at the end of chapter 9, but I have to be careful myself, lest after preaching I fall away. And then he's, he's already told them in this chapter, hey, you need to watch out lest you fall away. And here's the examples from Old Testament Israel. And, and with all of that in place, then he is starting to draw these things back together. So if a tangent isn't quite the right word, but he he's, I think, really weaving together a variety of threads to make a, a really solid argument that certainly goes back to the meat sacrifice to idols, but even relates to other things that he's written to them about matters of unity and matters of, of sexual immorality and, and marriage and the Lord's word. Like, even though there are a variety of topics within this epistle, they all do go together. And it's not just sort of a, a bullet point list of random theological topics. Yeah, absolutely. And it's incredibly uh, relevant for today as well, because, I mean, these Corinthians, they're new Christians. And he's dealing with a lot of what we Lutherans deal with. So we Lutherans emphasize salvation by grace through faith alone, specifically this Christian freedom. We're very allergic to, to legalism. Uh, but, so what, but what does the old sinful flesh like to do uh, with Christian freedom? Well, it likes to abuse it. So like, what, what have you been set free for? Um, what are you going to do with your freedom? Are you going to abuse your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you going to use it to neglect uh, corporate worship, neglect hearing the Word of God, receiving the sacrament, uh, you know, loving God, learning His Word, etc.? Uh, so he he really is he's just teaching us how to be Christians, and just as he taught the Corinthians how to be Christians, he's teaching us how to be Christians. With that introduction in mind, let's take a look at how Paul teaches us to be Christians here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We begin at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That is our text for today. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Pastor Price, take us into that, that first sentence. It's very straightforward. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Yeah, so again, whenever you have a therefore, you should be paying attention to what's said before, which we've already, already discussed, right? I discussed it. Uh, Paul is using the example of those in the Old Testament uh, of what not to do. Uh, they were unfaithful, so you should be faithful. It says flee from idolatry. This is a, an important thing to note. Uh, to flee from idolatry uh, shows you how important, how dangerous idolatry is. This is the destruction of your faith. This is falling away, not being in fellowship with God anymore, and going to hell. 
Uh, he also uses such language in First Corinthians six, where he says, "Flee sexual immorality." So this, when he uses such language, this should be a wake-up call for us. He's not just saying, "Ah, you know, this isn't the most beneficial thing to do." He's like, "Ah, oh, well, you might want to cut down on the calories, you know, or maybe maybe quit smoking and, uh, you know, take up some exercise for half an hour a day." And that's this is what he's talking about. He's talking about flee from something that is absolutely detrimental to your salvation, uh, which is which is idolatry. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so I guess that's what I would say about verse 14. Sure, and I, I, the only thing I would add to that is that strong warning about need, the need to flee from this is spoken to the Corinthians as his beloved. I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind, that these warnings, these instructions are given to the Corinthians as his beloved saints in Christ, his brothers, as he's called them a number of times. He doesn't speak this strong language because he dislikes them or because he hates them. He actually speaks this language out of love. Yeah, and that's a really good point to bring up, because I think a lot of people, when they read some of the things that he says to the Corinthians, they, they almost think that he's just yelling at them. And you kind of get this with the Galatians, too, where he says, you know, who has bewitched you, oh foolish Galatians. Uh, well, he speaks in such a way to people that he that he loves. I mean, um, it, it, when you love someone, you have a little bit more passion, uh, and you can speak more boldly. Uh, so I, I think it, it also should get people to kind of be prepared. Like, you know, I should be willing to hear such rebukes and such exhortations from my Lord as well, and, you know, also from my pastor. Uh, and reading scripture, don't just uh, you know apply these rebukes to others, but apply them to yourself, uh, so that you are prepared to hear them from your from your pastor and from fellow Christians. Now, Paul says that he is speaking these things as to sensible people, and he calls them to judge for themselves what he's saying. What does he mean there in verse fifteen? Yeah, well, there are two ways I think you could take it. One is using it sarcastically or ironically. So calling them sensible people, saying, oh, well, are you really sensible? Uh, and, and some have taken it that way uh, because of how he speaks against the, the wise in this world. But I don't think that's the way to take it. I think the right way to take it is he's actually calling them sensible as in they're faithful. They have been granted the uh, ability to judge through faith in Christ. It's like what Jesus says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the things uh, of, of the Spirit of God, but for them it is in parables, so it's, it's hidden for them. But uh, he's talking to those who have been made wise by the Holy Spirit, uh, phronomoes, he calls them. Uh, so this is the, the same word that's used to describe the wise virgins who have oil in their lamps in Matthew 25, which is the last Sunday of the, of the Gospel lesson for the last Sunday of the Church here. And I believe earlier in I can't remember where it is, maybe it's in chapter 8 uh, or 6, he, said he, he actually does call them wise. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I think he's commending their faith, and it's showing that those who have faith are actually given a distinct ability by the Holy Spirit to judge what is right and wrong, and they're judging according to the rule of faith. Um, and so this is, he, he wouldn't speak this way unbelievers, because they wouldn't recognize the premises that he's going to lay out uh, directly after this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, wor- 
the wisdom of the cross was very prominent in chapter 1, and we shouldn't ever get too far away from the Christ crucified in this epistle especially. He did tell them back in chapter 1 that they were many of them were not wise according to worldly standards, but then he talks about the wisdom that he does impart, the wisdom that comes uh, from the Holy Spirit that gives the mind of Christ in chapter 2, so that in chapter 6, they should be able to judge matters concerning, like where they're taking people to court and suing people. Paul says, you really should be able to judge that yourselves. So I, I do think here that he is he's reminding them of those topics and commending to them this wisdom that he knows they have, and he's tried to impart to them, uh, rather than as being sarcastic by it. Yeah, absolutely. I, that, that's what that's what, how I think. Too. I think he. I really don't think you can take it any any other way. Although it has been taken. Sure. Uh, as him speaking sarcastically, but I just think that's a, a wrong interpretation. I think he's calling the wise according to faith, uh, the wisdom of the cross. So, so in that wisdom, then the wisdom of faith, the wisdom of the cross, he calls them to consider the cup of blessing and then the bread that we break. And he does this in the form of, of questions. And these, these questions, these couple verses here are very significant when it comes to what we teach concerning the, the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, which is a term we'll get from this passage. So there's a lot that we can talk about in these verses. Uh, Pastor Preuss, help us into them. Yeah, okay, well... Uh, first of all, um, the, the uki, the, uh, that's the word not in, in Greek, and it goes really well with how we're talking about them being wise, uh, as phronomoi, as wise ones, uh, as, as two wise ones, he says. Uh, so he's asking them a question, and it's, it's the word not uh, used here in Greek is expecting a positive answer. So when he says, uh, is it not a fellowship, a participation, a communion uh, with the blood of Christ? Is it not a, a communion with the body of Christ? He's expecting a, well, yes, it is a communion with the body of Christ. Yes, it is a communion with uh, the blood of Christ. Uh, so I think that goes really well with what we were just saying about them yeah. being wise. Um but it, this is, uh, and then later on, he uses another word for not, which is may. It's at the very end where he says, are we stronger than him? And it says, may is rateroi out to us men. So uh, are, we, uh, are we stronger than him? He's expecting a negative answer. No, we are not smaller. We, we are not stronger than him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just briefly, just to, to back that point up, Pastor Preuss, that, that you're not making this up. Uh, we do this in English as well. We just do it with our tone of voice usually, or maybe our word order, rather than which form of the word not we use. So to, to kind of get that across in English, in verse 16, we might say it's something like this. The cup of blessing that we bless, it's a participation in the blood of Christ, isn't it? And And you can tell in the way that I phrase it in my tone of voice, I'm expecting you to agree with me. Whereas in, say, verse 22, are we stronger than he? We might say that we're not stronger than he, are we? And you can hear, oh, no, we're not. So you can hear that in English. Greek simply does that in the choice of which form of the word not you use. So you're not making that up, and it's something that, that most languages have, including English. Right, and it's not—and and again, this fits well with Scripture is clear. So this isn't a confusing thing at all. Right. This is something that we pastors frequently use, and— catechism class, Bible study, and 
in our sermons, but you even use it, you know, in your house. Uh, uh, That's right. Normal, a wife will use this to to her husband. I mean, even like the the question, like, do I say, do I look like an idiot? I mean, <laughs> everyone knows what you're not. Answer. You know what to give. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, so well. Anyway, going back to verse sixteen, so there's a couple of blessings that we bless, uh, and the commentaries will talk about how this couple of blessing and how there's a history in the, in Judaism where you would have a final cup that was the cup uh, that that would you know, say a blessing over. Uh, it's referenced in, in Luke in the, uh, Luke's account of the Gospel lesson where he has this cup that they go around with the blessing, and then I guess also in uh, and of, of course. This would then be the cup that's used in the sacrament. But what he says is the cup of blessing, which we bless, there he's making it very clear. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. So there's no ambiguity uh, of, uh, of like what he's talking about. He's not talking about some other you know, agape meal or some other uh, uh, ceremony that, uh, that's other than the, the sacrament. Uh, and and uh, again, when he talks about the body, he says, you know, the the body which we break. It's, he uses the same verb uh, for when, in, in the words of institution, when Jesus broke the bread. Mm-hmm. So this bread and wine that they are eating and drinking, that they are blessing in the Lord's Supper, which was instituted on the night when Christ was betrayed, I think Paul will explicitly uh, spell out in the next chapter uh, is a participation, is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. So St. Paul makes this very clear both here and in the First Corinthians 11, and yet uh, he, he makes distinct points as well. Uh, so uh, first, in, in verse 16, what he is saying is, what he's arguing for is the real presence. First, he starts to talk about the real presence, and then he starts talking about the uh, mystical body of Christ. Uh, so what we mean, mean by real presence, is that word itself, or that term itself, can be abused, is we're, we're talking about the distinct presence of Christ's body and blood. So the very body that was nailed and flogged and uh, crucified, hanged on the cross, uh, bled and, and died. The same blood that came from the wounds caused by the, the flogging and from the nails, and from the spear, and from the the, uh, the crown of thorns. That is the very same body and blood which we receive in the sacrament. Also, the, the very same body and blood that then rose again, became animated again in the resurrection, and is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So we we don't speak of it as a local presence. What we mean by local is uh, he's, he's present in a different way than uh, he is than he was present when he appeared to his disciples, for example, on the sun on the, that first Easter. Uh, he's present in a different way than when we will see him, or a different mode, I should say. Yeah. But it is is just as real of a presence. As if we were, as if he were to be standing, and we were to touch his hands and his side, and, and put our hand in in the the mark of the nails and the mark of the spear. Uh, but what what we uh, Lutherans will use will use the term sacramental union. 
Uh, now you could crit we're critical toward the uh, Roman Catholic for using the word transubstantiation, which we reject. We reject transubstantiation quite plainly because it's not taught in Scripture. Uh, transubstantiation is the teaching that the bread and wine cease to be bread and wine and are left only with the accidental, uh, you know, the accident of bread and wine. So the substance is no longer bread and wine, but it still has the accident, meaning that the taste, the smell, the feel of bread and wine. And we just say, well, that's, you know, that's philosophical gobbledygook. And uh, it was accepted very late in the Catholic tradition, so we don't, we don't accept that. But people might say, well, where does it say sacramental union? Well, what sacramental union is doing is simply articulating what St. Paul said. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the bread, and he speaks of the cup, right? So he's talking about bread, and he's talking about wine. And yet he says, this is uh, bread, or this is the body, this is the blood. So in the next chapter, he'll say that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning not bread wine, but he's guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So we recognize that it is still bread and wine, and yet it is also a participation in the body and blood of Christ, a communion with the body and blood of Christ, a union. So we call this a sacramental union, which literally means a mysterious union. That we, we, so we don't explain it beyond that. It's simply that when you eat the bread, it is Christ's body. Yep. And when you drink the blood, you are drinking Christ blood. Yep. Uh, you can talk say, in with an under, you can say under, you can say sacramental union, however you want to use it. Those are all traditional Lutheran ways of saying it. But what we're saying is that the bread that we eat, and when you eat the bread, you, you're eating the body of Christ. And when you drink the, the wine, you are drinking the blood of Christ. Yep. Yeah. And, and all of that, which is, again, very present here in 1 Corinthians 10, comes straight from the words of the Lord himself, which, as you said, Paul's going to repeat for us here in the next chapter, and we have from the, the evangelists that, that record it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who, when they record the Lord's words, what did he say? This is my body. This is my blood. Those very plain words from the Lord himself are the foundation for all that the scriptures teach about the Lord's Supper. And so these verses back up what we believe and teach concerning that the bread is the body, the cup is the, is the blood, and again, it's all based on the Lord's word, but Paul's just drawing from that in order to, to teach here the same good news. So it, it is the body of Jesus, it is the blood of Jesus, and it's all for the forgiveness of sins, which is like that's where the rubber hits the road. That's why it matters. This isn't about winning an argument with your Calvinist friend or, or your Roman friend. It's about knowing the what it is for the sake of your forgiveness. Right. Well, and that's why uh, Paul takes such a big deal of it. I mean, he says flee idolatry, and then he goes into the Lord's Supper. Well, why is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, because this is about the most intimate relationship that mm. we can have with Christ on earth. Uh, this word koinonia, I mean, yeah. uh, thanks to the President Harrison, I, I believe, uh, this word kind of popularized even among the laity. Uh, but in passage, of course, have known this word for a long time because we learn our Greek and we, we read it. But koinonia 
as you mentioned earlier, that's where we get the word for communion, holy communion. So it, this is to have a participation, it's to share in something. So when you are sharing in the bread, you are sharing in the body of Christ. When you're sharing with the cup, you're sharing with the blood of Christ. Uh, in First Corinthians, First John chapter one, he says, "If we walk in the light, he's in the light." Then we have koinonion, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, uh, I mean, this is a very significant thing. To why does it matter that it is the true body and blood of Christ? Because it gives us the forgiveness of sins. It has the it has the same power as that body and blood. So, I mean, people really like where I'm from. Everyone loves the, the, that song, uh, The Old Rugged Cross. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, well, anyway, it's, it's not in our hymnal. And it's, it's, people like that. They like, they like the idea of like being at the cross. Right. Well, Luther points up, you can't go to the cross. Even if you could, even if you could go outside Jerusalem, where Jesus was, he said, the exact location. The cross isn't there. And Jesus, you wouldn't see him there. So how do you go to Christ? How do you go to, even if, if you go to the empty tomb, he's not there. So where do you go to find him? Well, in the sacrament of the altar, we have the very body and blood of Christ, which wins for us peace and, and literally gives us that peace. And very little literally washes us clean uh, from our sins with Christ's blood. Yeah, in, in a hymn that is in our hymnal, in Lutheran Service Book number 629, the hymn, What is This Bread? Stanza 4 asks the, this question at the start, Yet is God here? And then the answer, Oh yes, by word and promise clear, in mouth and soul he makes us whole. Christ truly present in this meal, O oh, taste and see, the Lord is real. The sacrament, this is where you go to meet your Savior, to receive his body and his blood through eating and drinking for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the precious gift that Paul is describing and commending to the Corinthians and commending to us still today. We're going to keep looking at this text and more of Paul's instructions on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor James Preuss this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 5th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22 with Pastor James Preuss 
He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's questions, which expect the answer, yes, the cup of blessing that we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ, and the bread that we break, it is a participation in the body of Christ. That cup is his blood. That bread is his body, according to the Lord's promise. He makes himself present so that we eat and drink his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, Paul continues to draw implications from this sacrament, from the Lord's institution. As he goes into verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So now he he speaks not only of the, the fact that we participate with the body of Christ, but now he starts talking about a little bit what this means for our lives together within the church. Take us into verse 17. Right. So just as chapter uh, verse 16 talks about this vertical fellowship, vertical koinonia, as the uh, scripture calls it. Vertical meaning going up from up and up and down. So us with God. So verse 17 talks about a horizontal fellowship. So if you are participating with the body of Christ, then everyone who is participating in the body of Christ is also participating with you. So uh, he uses this word, there's one bread. So we who are many are one body. Uh, From ancient times, Christians have been using this analogy of of the grains of wheat in the field that are joined together to form one loaf of bread. And in our liturgy uh, for Monday, Thursday, when you have the corporate confession and absolution option, and it talks in the beginning uh, about the sacrament, and it talks about the many grains of wheat uh, forming one loaf of bread and the many grapes forming one cup of wine. So we who are many are, are united. So this is, where he, this is where he connects it with idolatry. He's talking about idolatry is going to flee idolatry don't participate in the sacrifices of demons because you already are participating in the sacrifice of the Lord. You are already united with, uh, with Christ, with, uh, with his body. So uh, when we talk about Christ's body, you know, we talk about his, his physical body, right? And we talk about his, his uh sacramental body, which is a, a union with his physical body. And we also talk about the mystical body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ is the communion of saints. It's all the saints who are united to Christ through faith. And in the sacrament of the altar, we have this, uh, and this is where the mystical body uh, becomes active and, and, and joins itself in a very real way, in a sacramental way, uh, and in a, in a spiritual way as well. So uh, we, when you commune, you're not only communing with God. This is just like a private thing with you and God. Uh, this is a thing that you are doing with Christ's church and with all people who are communing with you. So um, it's kind of, in a greater sense, I mean, one of the things that we say in our liturgy uh, when we're praying, we say with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So that's a comfort that we have when you commune, you are being united with the whole mystical.
mystical body of Christ. Uh, so if you have departed loved ones who are in heaven, I mean, you're being united with them because as they're united with Christ, so you can't be united with Christ without being united to them, with them. So that's always a, a comforting thing for Christians, especially on All Saints Day. But anytime you receive communion, uh, you remember that you are being united with to those who you love. You can also think about it with your far from home or far from your loved ones. Whenever you go to communion, you can remember that you are being united with uh, your mom and dad, your grandparents, your child who moved to a different country, whatever it is, and you're united with, with the, that person as well, along with all Christians. Uh, there's another topic that this brings up, though, and that is the topic of closed communion. Uh, and what closed communion is, and quite frank, quite plainly, closed communion is communion. There's no such thing as open communion. Uh, open communion is an oxymoron, uh, meaning it, 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 open communion is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing. Because communion means that you're, you're sharing something in common. But what St. Paul is writing here about is pretty much saying, well, it's obvious that there's no such thing as open communion. Therefore, you shouldn't be eating from uh, the sacrifice of, of idols and also from the, the, the table of the Lord. So what closed communion is, what we're saying is in our church, is that we only give communion to those who have been examined and absolved uh, and are members of the Lutheran Church. Specifically, uh, the Lutheran uh, congregations and synods that are in our fellowship. So in our churches, we don't give communion to those who are members of, let's say, a Roman Catholic Church or a Baptist Church or a Methodist Church, or even so-called Lutheran churches that are not in our fellowship, like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or the uh, Lutheran, uh, like the, the Lutheran uh, Congregations and Mission for Christ, because we're not in fellowship with them. We teach different and contrary things to what they teach, or they teach different contrary things to what we teach. Uh, so to have, to celebrate communion with them and to partake from the same altar as them uh, is to tell a lie. And it's to say that we have a un unity, we have a communion that we don't actually have through faith. So uh, all Christians have celebrated closed communion through the history of, uh, of the Christian church. And even today, I mean, everyone celebrates closed communion to some extent, even like those who don't believe that the Lord suffers Jesus through body and blood, who are notorious for practicing open communion. Even they will not give communion to, let's say, a child or to someone who's not baptized or to someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God. Really, the question is, like, what level of unity do you need to have in order to commune together? And there are some now who will literally say, we give communion to absolutely everyone. But that is a very radical view that even those who don't believe in the real presence uh, think it's a bit odd. Hmm. Now, Pastor Price, to, to go back to a little bit of what we talked about earlier with this word, Paul's talking to them as his beloved. Well, and this is an objection I'm, I'm sure you've heard and most pastors have, but Pastor, that's not very loving to deny people communion. How do you, from this passage and from others in the scriptures, how do you respond to that? Well, it's, it's a very loving thing to do. Uh, 
as a matter of fact. First of all, it's just being honest. So communion is saying that you believe the same thing. Uh, and if you don't believe the same thing, you should actually admit it. Um, honesty is actually what's going to help our relationship. <clears throat> me. Uh, but, but, well, let's actually look at it. So let's take uh, the Baptists, for example. So there are lots of very pious Baptists who are they're real Christians. They believe the Lord that uh, Jesus is God and man. And he suffered and died for the sins of the saved uh, through faith in Christ. Uh, and they're very zealous for the Lord, and, and we have a lot in common with them, and, and that's wonderful. So should we have communion with them? Well, consider this. Uh, I believe, and we Lutherans believe, the Lord's Supper is Jesus' true body and blood. They believe that the Lord's Supper is just bread and wine, or in most cases with them, grape juice, mm. and that's only a symbol. Okay, so... When you commune, you are confessing the same thing about what you're eating. So if I'm confessing that it is the very body and blood of Christ, which is crucified and risen from the dead, and they're confessing that it is just bread and just wine, then we're not confessing the same thing, are we? So that's a, that's a very clear thing. However, it goes beyond that. Uh, some we'll try to, and even within our church, it's a, uh, actually President Harrison uh, said something quite helpful at the convention last year, where he was talking about pastoral discretion, which is true. So we ordinarily only give communion to those who are in the Missouri State or one of the sister congregations. There is pastoral discretion. Okay, pretty much everyone agrees on that. But one thing he said was, well, pastoral discretion isn't just, oh, do you believe that Jesus is true body and blood? That's not the litmus test. You can believe, you got two people who believe that it is the true body and blood of Christ, but don't, uh, who still aren't in fellowship. Because that's not the only thing that matters, is whether it's Jesus' body and blood. We agree with the Roman Catholic that it's Jesus' body and blood, but we don't believe with the Roman Catholic that it can, can be offered up as a perpetual sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of those who are in purgatory and for others to get them out of purgatory. Uh, we don't believe that we are saved both by faith and good work. And, and those are huge, that there's a huge differences in what we believe. So uh, I guess we haven't, we haven't actually gotten to those verses yet, but you talked about like, the table of demons. This is what gets people really upset. Like, are you saying that these are tables of demons? Like, well, okay. Um, I'm not saying that Baptists worship demons or that Roman Catholics worship demons. I believe they worship Christ, or at least most of them. Um, and I'm not going to judge their, the secrets of their heart. But I can say that all false doctrine does come from the devil. And uh, you can't confess two contradictory things. So uh, I can't confess that it is both Jesus' body and blood, and that it is not Jesus' body and blood. I can't confess that I'm saved through faith apart from my work, and I'm saved by my work. I can't confess both things. Uh, and when you commune with churches that teach contrary to what you can 
fast, then you are breaking the second commandment, which is that we should not misuse the name of the Lord our God, which means that we should not uh, curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or mm-hmm. deceived by God's name, but call upon every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So if you are a Baptist who communes at a Lutheran altar, then you are deceiving by God's name. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would be a Baptist. If you're a Lutheran and you commune at a Baptist altar, then you are deceiving by God's name. Otherwise, you would uh, you'd be a Baptist or you would commune at a Baptist altar. Yeah, yeah, and again, I mean, to the to the pastor then who calls that person to think about these things in saying you should not receive the Lord's Supper here today, especially for those who have been caught up in these false teachings that the bread is not Christ's body and the wine is not Christ's blood. That might be one of the few times that they're actually made to consider what the Lord's word actually says and be called back to the true teaching and false doctrine hurts people. That's the reality. It doesn't seem like it would do all that much, but it does. And it's something that we should take very seriously. We pray for that. Every time we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are asking for the Lord to keep us in the truth of his word. And so to to call those who do not believe the truth of the word of Christ concerning the sacrament is to be loving to them. And to, again, not to say that, that they're necessarily going to hell because they've forsaken faith in Christ. As you said, we don't know that. But we do know that this confession is not true. And anytime we're we're knowingly involved in a confession that's not true, that's not good for us or for our spiritual condition. Right. And and St. Paul speaks very plainly in the next chapter, so Corinthians eleven, where he says that whoever, you know, eats without fearing the body of the Lord eats judgment to himself. He even talks about those being sick and dying because of this. So uh it's just as a doctor doesn't give medicine that he thinks is going to harm someone. Yeah. You can have medicine that might save one person and harm another person. So if the doctor gives that medicine to one person with the intent of saving him, and then doesn't give that medicine to another person because he believes it will harm him, and nobody's going to call that doctor mean or heartless or whatever things they might call called active practice for community because we recognize that, well, not all medicines for everyone. Uh, now, it's true that Jesus did share his blood for everyone, but it has to be received through faith. Yep. Uh, and Scripture does give clear warnings of those who receive it uh, unworthily or without, rec- without discerning it, uh, then they they eat to their own judgment. Uh, so it's not, I mean, even in this very same book, uh, back, if you go back to chapter 5, he talks about. Uh, excommunication, and he says, deliver this man over uh, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul may be saved on the last day. Well, he's, does he hate this person who is caught up in sexual immorality? No, I mean, the, the, the main point of his action is for the salvation of that man's soul. Uh, so here we're, we're talking about uh, doing things that are good for, for the soul and for the body for the faith, uh, and our desire really is to have union uh, with with the Baptists, with the Catholics, with the Methodists. But that union can only be uh, by, by having a unity in, in teaching and unity in faith. Yeah. And we don't just get there by just claiming that we have it. It's not there. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, that goes back to chapter one, that the the one mind to which he called the Corinthians in the first place was the one mind that is found under the name of Jesus Christ. That's where true unity is found. And if we try to make up a unity of our own, it, it won't last. It won't be any good. The true unity is found in Christ. And then he strengthens that unity as we come to receive his body and blood united in confession of faith. So when your practor, when your pastor practices closed communion, when your congregation practices closed communion, they're being loving, they're calling people to the true faith in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's keep working our way through this text. You've already brought up some of the things about table of demons, table of the Lord. Uh, take us into the Old Testament example that he brings up in this text in verse 18 concerning the people of Israel and the altar that they would eat from. Right. So there were different types of sacrifices. You can read about them in, in uh, Leviticus. Um, so some of them you wouldn't eat anything from, obviously, when you have the whole the whole burnt offerings. Um, then you would have other offerings where it would provide food for the priest. But then also you would have uh, fellowship or the peace offerings, what they were called. Uh, although that, that word is, has been translated as a fellowship or a communion offering. You can read about those in uh, Leviticus 3 um, and, uh, and 7. Uh, the word, I'm not, and I'm not sure why it's translated as fellowship or communion. Uh, in in uh, Hebrew, they are peace offerings. In, in the Greek, the Septuagint, they're salvation offerings. Hmm. But in the NIV, and then in this Catholic, and the NIV is the fellowship offering. And then I found this Catholic translation, the Roman Catholic translation. They called it a communion offering. Hmm. Well, the point is, in, with these offerings, the, the person who offers it, who brings it to the priest to be sacrificed, he gets to share with it. So not only the priest, even in the Old Testament, like we, like we Lutherans have this very distinct doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Because we, you know, and, and this is, you know, St. Paul brings this up, we're sharing in the, all, in the offering. This is, this is the right of the priest. They could just sit in the holy place and eat uh, the food that had been sacrificed. Well, the, well, all believers actually get to do that when they offer uh, the peace offering, or at least they get to, there's certain portions that are given to the priest, and then they get to have it. So this is a distinct right of the priesthood of all believers that we share in the offering. But you can't share in the offering of, of God, uh, the altar of God, and then at the table of a false God, because you are uh, you're provoking the Lord to anger. You are uh, raising his, his jealousy. Uh, as, uh, as Elijah said in... Uh, uh, on Mount Carmel, where he says, "Why are you? How long will?" And King Team, he says, "How long will you step between two different opinions?" Mm. Um, and then in, in Second Corinthians six, he says, um, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial?" Uh, or what has part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, so it's a very special thing to partake in the sacrifices of the Lord. 
and in the sacrament, we are participating in that. It's, um, I just recently read from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 on the Mass. So the Roman Catholics taught that, and still do teach, that the Mass, that is the Saturday of the altar, is a sacrifice offered up to God. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. It's a sacrifice and atonement offered up to God. And the Lutherans say, well, no, there are two types of sacrifices. There's a sacrifice of atonement, of which there has only been one in the history of the world, and that is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. There were atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament, but they didn't actually atone for sins because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, but rather they pointed to and prefigured uh, the one atoning sacrifice in Christ. And the other type of sacrifices is uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving. So when we receive the Lord's Supper, we are receiving the benefits of that one atoning sacrifice which Christ made once and for all. But we are also offering our sacrifices of thanksgiving because the preaching of the word and all the things that we do through faith and the Christian life is a life of, of sacrifice, of thanksgiving. Uh, so you... you you can't be doing that and then also participating in this idol worship, which again brings back, I mean, I know we want to be nice to our Baptist friends and our Catholic friends and, uh, and all, all of our friends, all these different denominations. And I want to be nice to them. We can't just be isolated. That being said, um, we do have to call out the teaching of demons. So uh, recently I saw on the internet, uh, there was this lady a PCUSA pastorette or pa pa pastrix, I think she calls herself. She's a female pastor. And of course, you know, that's the Bible says the women can't be pastors. But this woman uh, is it's a pro abortion advocate. So, like, you can't find anything where she actually talks about the forgiveness of sin. She talks about feminism and stuff like that. And she has this clip, this clip online of her preaching on Genesis 3, where she says that God lied, Satan told the truth. And Eve is the heroine for recognizing uh, that the fruit gave knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, and then she said talking, using that then to defend, like, you know, the autonomy of the body and the, the probable heritage. I mean, these are the things that some of these churches are teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. The ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, in 2019, at their, you know, national convention, whatever they call it, they had an amendment that's been brought forward that says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. He brought up this amendment in response to this uh, overture where they were saying that God can't, that we can't judge how God judges other religions. Well, the amendments failed. So at their convention, they rejected the words of Jesus, which say that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. So when we have people who come from the PCUSA or the United Methodist or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America or the Episcopalian Church in America or any of these church bodies that so blatantly reject Christ Jesus as the Savior of the world and who will deny the divinity of Christ, who will this very, uh, quite frankly, will teach the doctrines of demons. We should warn people. We should let them know. Did you know that your church teaches this? And that this is the, these are the things that are promoted, that you have a bishop in your church who 
uh, denies that Jesus is God. He said that Jesus sinned as uh, they have the United States Church who promote transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion uh, and say that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Uh, and uh, so again, I don't want to be mean, but there are a lot of Christians who are members of these churches and uh, they should leave. They should flee them hmm. uh, because you should not be communing at a church that would teach such things. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the questions that Paul asks at the end, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he ought to, to make us think about these things at, at least think, and then to take action on them, lest we do those things, provoke the Lord to jealousy or think we are stronger than he and find out. No, in fact, we are not. I have about two minutes here, Pastor Preuss, help us to, to wrap things up on, on this text concerning fleeing from idolatry and rejoicing in the Lord's gifts in the supper. Well, I think what we should recognize, is that what we do on Sunday morning is uh, inextricably joined to the rest of our life. Uh, we shouldn't be hypocrites. Jesus speaks very much against that. So we shouldn't be saying one thing on Sunday morning, and when we're communion, we're saying something. We'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think all points up in this next chapter. Uh, we're communing with Christ. We're communing with the one true God. And that's what we should be saying throughout our, our whole life. So we should flee sexual immorality, and we should flee idolatry. Uh, so how we live our life, uh, the activities that we participate in, the conversations that we have, um, how we conduct our marriage, how we raise our children, should be directly related to what we are doing on Sunday morning when we worship Christ, hear his preaching, and receive his holy sacrament. And we should also recognize that this unity is based on teaching. This koinonia, this fellowship, this holy communion, is based on the, the teaching of Christ. So we should take our membership to our church very seriously. And we should examine what we believe and what that church teaches. And we should want that to be united. So that when we do visit other churches, or when you move and you look at any other church, that you're looking for that unity. And that we should not ignore the teaching uh, of the churches that we attend. So uh, uh, I guess that's how I, would, that's how I would sum it up, that uh, the central thing here is, is the sacrament of the altar of Christ's true body and blood that we receive in the form of bread and wine for the forgiveness of our sins, uh, and that this is an expression of, of fellowship with God, with the Holy Christian Church, and with those with whom we are communing at that very service where we receive it. Pastor James Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Flee from idolatry. Run away from the table of demons. Run to the table of the Lord where he gives his true body and blood for you to eat and drink for your forgiveness. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 10, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. 
It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.